0: Topeka is the capital city of the state of Kansas. It's just about at the geographical center of the United States and was the westernmost point of my journey. Here, the Midwest empties into the Great Plains like one great body of water into another. The passage is unmarked by any unique physical features. There are just fewer and fewer people and more and more cattle. I had come this far because 20 years ago I had lived here And frankly, it was the weirdest place I've ever been. I moved to Topeka the day I graduated college. I had already studied and traveled extensively in Europe, and no matter where I'd been overseas, no matter that I'd been to places where I had to use sign language to simply order a meal, I had not felt as much a foreigner in a place as the first morning I woke up in Topeka. The physical landscape was completely strange. The flatness of Kansas, Not a billiard table flatness, but undulating ocean flatness with fields of corn and wheat floating off as far as the eye could see. The city itself was dominated not by the state capitol's dome, but by the dozens of railroad tracks that bent around the banks of the Kansas River, past the enormous grain storage elevators. Imagine the Empire State Building in New York, knocked over on its side and filled up with wheat, and you have a sense of these structures people here were strange. They weren't open and friendly. They were polite and generally disinterested in outsiders. I had to find a job and after living in town for a couple of weeks I noticed that the newspaper, the Topeka Capital Journal, had no film critic. So I wrote a couple of sample reviews and went down to the paper to give them to the features editor. He explained that the reason there were no film reviews was the paper's publisher thought they were a form of advertising. If cinema owners wanted people to go to the movies, they could take out ads in the paper. He wasn't giving them free publicity in the form of reviews. I worked for a time in a warehouse, unloading massive semi-trailers filled with boxes of shoes that had been purchased on the cheap by Volume Shoe Corporation, a discount shoe retailer. It was laborious rather than hard work. It was also boring and hot. In midsummer in Kansas, temperatures reached the high 90s, and inside these trucks, parked out in the sun, the temperature got well above that. After about a day of this work, I began to resent the fact that I was earning a few pennies above minimum wage, about a dollar 92. After a few more days, I finally asked one of the fellows why there wasn't a union. He explained that an organizer had spent six months at the warehouse, but gave up, not because the owner of the place gave him trouble, but because the workers themselves didn't want to join up. They seemed convinced that union membership was the first step towards Communist Party membership. I quit, or got fired, and couldn't even deal with the situation by getting drunk. You couldn't get a drink in town. Kansas was a dry state. I spent hours aimlessly driving around the countryside, plucking ears of sweet corn from the stalk, munching them like fruit, listening to the incomprehensible discussions of agricultural trivia, and feeling lost in a time warp. It was, as you can tell, not a happy time in my life. But the reason I chose to go back there is that Topeka is a place that time forgot, and I reckoned if any city in America had avoided the destabilizing social problems of the last decade or so, it would be Topeka. As I drove into town, I dialed around the radio to remind myself that, yes, I was in Kansas once again, and the radio confirmed for me that the crucial topics of discussion out here hadn't changed. The most limiting factor for winter wheat yields is not drought or pest stress. That factor is early summer heat, says K-State crop physiologist Gary Paulson. And with that in mind, agronomists here are working to develop heat resistance in wheat varieties. Susan will visit with Gary about it. And there's much more ahead for you on this edition of Agriculture Today. Good to have you along with us. Well, there's a renewed emphasis on alfalfa research here at Kansas State. I arrived during the evening rush minute and took a little spin around the downtown area. On the surface, it was clear that the city had changed, but only recently, and only on the surface. There were more parking lots than I remembered around my old apartment building, and fewer stores. That was because a ring road had been built around Topeka, and a couple of big shopping strips had been developed near the highway. I stayed in a motel complex across from the brand new Walmart hypermart, the biggest single store I've ever seen. It put everything you might want to buy in a shopping mall under a single roof: food, clothes, drugs, books, garden furniture. It was so big, they had a McDonald's inside, not as a separate store. The shopping carts had pocket calculators attached to them so you could tote up what you were purchasing as you went along. I laughed to myself thinking, They couldn't put calculators on the carts in new york they'd get stolen in a minute the place was open 24 hours a day a reasonable idea in a place like new york the city that never sleeps but a curious idea in a place like topeka the city that never wakes up i spent a day or so trying to meet Topekans, but didn't have much luck after about 15 unreturned phone calls i went in person to the warehouse where i had worked volume shoe company had been bought up by a national retail outfit and I was told it would take a while to get permission from head office in Chicago to let me on the premises. I began to think I should move on down the line and leave Topeka to itself. Up the road from the warehouse was Rose's Mexican restaurant, and I went in to mull over my situation over a combination plate of burritos and enchiladas. I hadn't called any officials on this trip. I'd simply been meeting people by talking to them in restaurants and bars, but I figured this time I would have to call City Hall and get the official line on what was going on in the city. So, the next morning, I found myself talking with Greg Miller, a Topeka native and the city's director of communications. We started out talking numbers. Topeka's population is around 120,000, the same as 20 years ago, but we quickly left statistics behind to talk about the changes in the city on a more personal level. Miller grew up during the 60s and 70s, but remembers that even in those turbulent times, Topeka was more like a town from a 1940s movie, staid and serene, with people living in clean houses surrounded by neat lawns. New ideas didn't find much purchase in Topeka. Miller explained the attitude this way. People felt, if it's not here already, then it must not be good. Miller told me the physical changes in Topeka occurred about seven years ago, when the community, for the first time in living memory, elected a Democrat to be mayor. He changed planning laws, and almost immediately, property developers had their bulldozers out, clearing land for places like the Walmart hypermart. The predictable result was that these malls, with their easy access by car, sucked the life out of the downtown area with the speed and violence that a tornado, the funnel-shaped windstorms that are the scourge of Kansas, suck the air out of houses, reducing them to rubble. Now, with trade gone to these malls at the edge of town, Shops in the center were going out of business. Much of downtown Topeka was becoming derelict. Across the street from the apartment building I had lived in was a burgeoning skid row. There had been drive-by shootings in the area. I asked him about crime, and he showed me some statistics. Burglaries had doubled since I lived here. Assaults trebled, but murders were about the same. Not very many. But there was fear that the nature of crime was changing. It's being committed by kids who have no idea what they're doing. Recently, a couple of teenagers had been out driving when their car broke down. They flagged down a passing driver who stopped to help. They shot him dead and took his car. They didn't run away, didn't try to escape. They simply went home and watched television. The police found them there. They seemed to have no idea of the enormity of what they had done. I wanted to know if the kids who had committed this crime were white or black, but I had to tiptoe delicately around the question. Greg Miller is an African-American, and discussions about crime and race in the U.S. right now are fraught. But he explained that crime in Topeka is an equal opportunity employer. All races are involved, and this murder was committed by a white youth and his black friend. With the subject open, we carried on talking about race relations in Topeka, a city with an interesting history on the subject. The modern civil rights movement began here in 1954, when a successful suit was brought against the city, forcing the schools to desegregate. Miller is a direct beneficiary of that decision. Doors were open to him that were not open to his parents. He recalled growing up relatively unaware that his color made him very different. He was still a boy when Martin Luther King was assassinated. He didn't become aware of what the difference was until he graduated high school, and went to the University of Kansas in Lawrence, a few highway toll stops down the road from Topeka. His best friend in high school, who was white, was also enrolling at the university. Miller asked him if he'd like to be his roommate. His friend declined. Miller didn't register whether that hurt him or not, but he points to that moment as the beginning of an understanding that perhaps integration, as dreamed of by Dr. King, might not be a realistic or even a desirable goal. Greg Miller spoke about race in America today with an earnestness and lack of emotion that I found a trifle unnerving. Seated behind his desk, he gazed evenly at me through his spectacles and was quite matter of fact in questioning the value of the civil rights movement and wondering whether segregation didn't have hidden values. In his view, segregation forced blacks to have a greater sense of community. There were more black businesses because black people couldn't go into many white stores. There were more men around. There was a kind of mentorship, his word, that went on between the generations of men that is absent today. Miller explained earnestly, you can't close your eyes to the history. In my grandfather's day, there was segregation. They tolerated a lot of abuse, but each of them had their own business. One was a blacksmith, the other a bricklayer. The hard segregation had ebbed by the time Miller's father was ready to seek work. He got a job in a local tire plant that had recently become integrated, yet, in Miller's words, didn't have the same level of control over his destiny that his grandfather's did. In America over the last decade, it's become more acceptable to be racially intolerant, he went on, and told me that he thought it was time for African Americans to redevelop the sense of community that existed when they were segregated. He doesn't see solutions to the community's problems without it. In his quiet way, he seemed to be speaking thoughts that Malcolm X had frightened white America witless with three decades ago. But community self-reliance is also an old Midwestern theme. Perhaps there was an element of that as well in his thinking. I didn't have much to say to all this. To listen to a young, middle-class black man quite reasonably explain the values in segregation left me uncharacteristically speechless. Greg Miller has a six-year-old daughter. I wondered if he worried about her encounters with racial hatred. But Miller's fears for her aren't about the effect prejudice will have on her life. It's about something else. I would have liked her to stay a child a little longer, he said. When I was six years old, I could get on my bicycle and ride from one side of town to the other. Now, as a parent, I can't allow her to do that. And on that sad note, I got up to leave. As I was packing up my briefcase, Miller asked if I wanted to look at his new video editing system. A couple of computer boffins in Topeka have developed an affordable computer program that allows the user to do all kinds of fancy television editing and design. The disc the program is on costs only $4,000, explained Miller. And now, instead of earnestness, his voice was excited. This is the first step into a future where people will be able to do their own video design and art, he told me. He's been able to use this program to design very sophisticated promotional videos for the city. At his insistence, I sit down and try it out. A couple of taps on the mouse, and I write my name across the screen in a grand flourish of script. Next, I'm painting it different colors, then dissolving it in a starburst. This is really neat, I exclaimed. This is the future, and it's starting in Topeka, of all places. And Miller, for the first time since I met him, smiled.